Welcome to the first episode of Psych Your Crime, a podcast that looks into the psychology behind infamous crimes. My name is Nicole Mann, and I am your host. In this episode, we're going to look at family annihilators, or people who commit familicide. Ever since his arrest, Chris Watts has dominated the headlines. People are horrified by the idea that a seemingly upstanding family man could kill his pregnant wife and children, then publicly play the mourning husband and dutiful father. You would think something this awful would be very rare, but unfortunately, not so much. January 5th, LA. Michael Bookerant shot his wife, 20-year-old daughter, and 11-year-old son in their home. January 8th, Galveston, Texas. Flore Maria Penida shot her husband and two sons at a resort. April 14th, Elmore County, Alabama. Bob Orson shoots his wife and 12-year-old triplets as his 13-year-old daughter runs for help. He then lights the home on fire, killing himself, his wife, and one of the wounded triplets, the other two barely escaping with their lives. July 9th, Delaware. Matthew Edwards shoots his wife three children, and then himself. July 29th, Astoria, New York. James Shields shoots his ex-wife, six-year-old son, current wife, and himself after losing all hope he could possibly win the long and contentious custody battle he was fighting. And August 12th, Clear Lake, California. Ricardo Lopez shoots his four kids and then himself killing three of the children. And these? These are just the first results to pop up in a quick Google search for Family Murders 2018. Since the Watts case is still ongoing, we're going to look at another case that fascinated people, specifically because of what the murderer did after the crimes. Now, that, that is the case of Christian Longo. Many of you may be familiar with this case, since the movie based on a book about the crime, was made starring James Franco and Jonah Hill in 2015. But before we get into Longo's story, let's discuss what is a family annihilator? What exactly is the psychology behind this phenomenon? Family annihilators are narcissists. They are people whose life is defined by the status they have or believe they deserve. They tend to see losing a job, not as a temporary setback, but as the loss of a lifestyle. When things go wrong, they have this sudden, unshakable realization that there is just no way out. Now where their friends and family see a difficult but entirely solvable problem, they see a hopeless and unsurmountable situation with no possible solutions. Money and status are just covers for their very real flaws that they do not want anyone to see. The very real and overpowering shame they feel when they fail is due to the realization they can't provide the lifestyle they feel their family deserves. Now, with family annihilators, Some of them killed just their families, 
and some of them kill themselves as well. When they kill their families, it's because they can't face them knowing they are a failure. But when they kill themselves, it's because they can't face the whole world knowing they're a failure. In 2013, a team led by Professor David Wilson published a research study in the Howard Journal of Criminal Justice that looked at three decades of criminal records in order to create a profile of the four types of men who commit these crimes. Now, this isn't to say women don't commit familicide. Consider the cases of Susan Smith and Andrea Yates, women in America that murdered all of their children. The problem is they both suffered from postpartum depression, hence the debate as to whether they even count as family annihilators. And all of the research I looked at, clinical textbooks, and even diagnostic manuals, they referred to annihilators in only the masculine. So these profiles only apply to men who kill their families. However, if any researchers or psychologists would love to do a similar study on women, I know a ton of people who would be completely and totally interested in your findings. Now, this research study led to them splitting annihilators up into four types. This completely destroyed the former misconception that there were only two types of family annihilators, those who committed the crimes out of revenge against a spouse or doing something that they thought was entirely altruistic, meaning they thought that they were saving their family from something. Now, the four types that they found were self-righteous killers. These tend to be people that hold the mother responsible for the breakdown of the family, and they'll often call her ahead of time to explain what they're doing. Self-righteous killers are often thought to be histrionic and dramatic by people who know them. They tend to choose extremely important dates to the family, such as birthdays, anniversaries, or even holidays to commit their crimes. The next category would be disappointed killers. They believe the family has let them down. And the killings tend to be triggered by something like a child not choosing to carry on the family business or deciding to follow a religion different than the one they were raised in. Many times people tend to believe that honor killings fall into this category. Next, we have anomic killers. They see the family as a symbol of their own economic success. But if they suffer some kind of economic failure, such as like a bankruptcy, the family no longer represents that prosperity and therefore they no longer need them. Last, we have paranoid killers. They're often motivated by a desire to protect their family from perceived threats. Oftentimes, the biggest perceived threat would be the possibility of social services coming to remove their children. Now, the study found that most family annihilators fall into one of two categories, self-righteous or anomic. Now that we know what drives male family killers, 
let's take an up close and personal look at a very specific one. That is Christian Longo. Raised in Ypsilanti Township, Michigan, Christian's mother divorced his father when he was a toddler, then remarried Joseph Longo, a devout Jehovah's Witness who adopted Christian. Now, for all intents and purposes, Christian had a happy and very healthy childhood. He was actively involved in his church and at a very young age became involved in door-to-door ministry. Christian started de- didn't start dating until he was 17, but he immediately fell head over heels for Mary Jane Baker, a woman seven years older than him that he met at church. At his first job in a camera shop, Christian, absolutely convinced that Mary Jane was the one, stole money to afford to buy her a 3.5 carat engagement ring. Now, eventually, Christian's conscience got the best of him, and he left a resignation letter with a check to cover the theft. But Christian's roommates at the time were Jehovah's Witnesses, and they informed the church elders of what he had done. Christian was sanctioned by the church, losing some of his responsibilities within the congregation, but much more importantly, much of his status as a leader among the younger congregants. Strangely enough, though, this theft and early warning sign did not phase Mary Jane in the least. They stayed together and two years later married. But unfortunately, due to the sanctions that were placed on Christian by the church, the couple could not actually be married in the church's kingdom hall. This for Mary Jane was a deep blow. Christian, however, continued to live far beyond his means, maxing out several credit cards. And shortly after their marriage, Mary Jane became pregnant with their son, Zachary. Things were to only get harder financially since Mary Jane stopped working to take care of the baby. And within two years, two more children, both girls, came. Now, around the time of their first, the birth of their first child, Christian started a construction cleanup business. At first, business was great, but soon, due to Christian's lack of business skills, the company started to have problems. Christian submitted several winning bids to construction companies so they could subcontract the cleanup of their sites. Pretty simple, you would think. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the construction industry, it's pretty standard practice to get at least half of the quoted amount up front in order to make sure you can cover operating costs. Obviously, though, since Christian was not doing this, actually taking no payment up front, word got out and people began to take advantage of Christian, hiring him and refusing to pay for the work at all. No one, including Mary Jane, had any idea how bad things are. When I say no one, I mean including Christian's business partner. Christian had such a slick, charismatic way about him that he was even able to convince his father to invest thousands of dollars into the company, believing it was profitable. Desperate and deeply in debt, Christian resorted to fraud and lots of it. 
One morning, Christian woke up to find his car was being repossessed. And when their other car broke down, he just did what normal people do. Make a fake driver's license, walk into a dealership, and take a minivan out for a test drive to his house. Right? Isn't that what everybody does? He just told everyone it was the new family car. Christian, though, had had all the bills forwarded to a P.O. box. And when his wife began asking him questions, like why they hadn't been receiving any billing statements for this new car, Christian just went on the computer and mailed them to their house. Now, in May 2000, Mary Jane called her sister, distraught, because she had discovered emails from Christian to another woman. When she confronted him about them, he said, well, you're just not any fun anymore. You know, since having kids, I just don't feel like I love you. I don't know about you, but if I just had three children with someone and suddenly, now that I had those children, I'm no longer fun and you no longer love me, we are gonna have a problem. But not Mary Jane though. She stayed, but she did tell the elders in the congregation about Christian's behavior. And once again, Christian was sanctioned by the church. They decided to try and work it out, but soon Christian grew even more desperate and he started forging checks from the companies that owed his business money and cashing them. Before long, the companies called the police because, well, it was forgery. And the cops came for him. He pled guilty in September of 2000 and received three years probation. But because out of pride he lied about his income, he was ordered to pay restitution in far greater amounts than he could possibly afford. When the elders from the congregation read about Christian's exploits in the newspaper, Christian was finally disfellowshipped from the Jehovah's Witnesses, something that deeply hurt Mary Jane as she had always been a devout Jehovah's Witness. Now, this wasn't the end of Christian's dishonest ways. With their finances and credit completely destroyed, Christian obtained a credit card in his father's name with a $100,000 limit without him knowing. Friends and church members were voicing more and more concern about the marriage. So Christian decided, it's time to make a new start. Let's just get up and go. Now, even though moving out of state meant violating the conditions of Christian's probation, they still picked up and moved from Michigan to a warehouse in Ohio. And yes, you heard me right. I said a warehouse. Christian told Mary Jane that they were gonna renovate the warehouse into a loft. And in the meantime, she believed that they had paid six months rent up front. However, they were actually squatting. That meant that they had to do without a kitchen and running water in this awful rundown warehouse. Christian was back to his old tricks. He was forging and cashing checks in order to pay the bills. Mary Jane had drifted out of contact with her family by this time. However, her sister Sally managed to find them completely by chance, driving to the city they moved to, Toledo, driving 
all over town until she got lucky and spotted what she believed was the family dog tied up outside the warehouse. Sally was able to get Mary Jane to talk to her just to find out if everything was all right. But Mary Jane, being the devout, good wife that she is, refused to leave her husband and return with her sister to Michigan. In the meantime, Christian had found a new con to try, selling stolen construction equipment. And yes, it was equipment he stole. But soon, the police were on to Christian, and he and Mary Jane pulled up stakes and went on the run. Oddly enough, Mary Jane had absolutely no idea any of this was happening. She still believed Christian had changed his ways and was living an honest life. Even though they were moving between motels and campsites to try and save money, and at one point, they were both driving stolen vehicles. During this time, Mary Jane's family had had enough, and they filed a missing persons report. Christian's parents were worried as well, not having heard from him since he left Michigan. And in the ultimate example of real-life foreshadowing, Christian's mother reportedly asked a federal agent, does somebody have to die before you do something? The family then moved to Oregon, where they rented a small vacation house in Waldeport. This lasted only a few weeks, since they obviously couldn't afford the rent. Next, Christian convinced the manager of a nearby nearby Bayfront condominium complex that he was a telephone company employee waiting for a paycheck. The manager bought this story and allowed the family to move into a $1,500 a month condo with no money up front. Christian then actually found a job. It was at a Starbucks in a Fred Meyer store, but true to form, Christian was humiliated by this job he felt that was entirely beneath him. He told his boss and all the fellow employees that he lived off a lucrative internet business, but had taken the part-time job because he just loves Starbucks so much. Now the family was obviously struggling, running out of money directly after payday. The rent on the condo was definitely not getting paid and groceries were few and far between. Christian even resorted to stealing gas for the car. Now, Christian, he knew it was just a matter of time before they were kicked out of the condo and just could not bring himself to tell Mary Jane. This signaled the beginning of the end, but sadly, Christian was the only one who knew it. And on December 19, 2001, a man in a Waldeport RV park found the body of a small boy floating face down in the water near his lot. The boy's photo was quickly released to the media and a couple who occasionally babysat for the children came forward and told the police the child looked like four-year-old Zachary Longo. Three days later, as divers searched the shallow slough where Zach was found, the body of a small girl was discovered, weighed down with rocks in a pillowcase tied to her ankle. Both children were clad 
only in underwear. And on December 27th, divers searching in local waterways found two suitcases under a dock at a marina connected to the condominium complex where the family had stayed. One contained the tiny body of the youngest Longo, Madison, only two, some of her clothing in a dumbbell. The other contained the naked remains of Mary Jane Longo. Autopsies later determined the family had been strangled and that there was evidence of blunt force trauma on Mary Jane's face. Meanwhile, Christian had made his way to San Francisco. Christian moved into a low-rent hostel and pretended to be a tourist. He was looking for work and picked up a job application at the Union Street Starbucks in downtown San Francisco. The day after Christmas, he dropped the application back at the Starbucks. On the form, he listed a callback number from a cell phone he purchased with the credit card number of Charles Markey, which he, was, he had stolen from the last Starbucks he worked at. Under references, he listed the real numbers of his former Starbucks co-workers, but gave fake area codes. Christian, however, changed his mind some time on that day, and he went on a nearby computer at a library and booked a flight to Mexico, setting to return for January 6th. Before dawn, on December 27th, Christian boarded American Airlines Flight 1048, bound for Cancun. In San Francisco Starbucks, employees had learned that the police in Oregon were searching for Longo and agreed to lure him to the FBI with the promise of a job interview the next morning. The manager of the Union Street store left a message on Longo's voicemail, but by then, Christian had already been in Mexico for nearly a day, staying at a $10 a night hostel under the name Michael Finkel. He quickly became friends with the Canadian couple, but they became suspicious when he forgot about his alias and used his real name. He was able to strike up an intimate relationship with a German woman who happened to be a photojournalist. This is important because the alias he had chosen was the name of a New York Times travel writer. As the two were growing close, an FBI agent appeared on the Today Show to announce to the nation the manhunt for Christian Longo, a man who had murdered his family. This led to hundreds of tips, one of which led to the stolen vehicle he had been driving at the San Francisco airport. It was parked at the International Departures Terminal. And that is how they found out he was traveling under the alias of Michael Finkel. Meanwhile in Cancun, Christian and his new German companion made friends with an American and some Englishmen. Christian enthralled them with tales of his travels as a writer for the New York Times. Christian was living the life, snorkeling, smoking pot, clubbing with new German fling. He claimed to be Ritz and just slumming it. That's why he was staying at hostels. But many times he couldn't keep his life straight. 
saying one day he was single because the amount of travel he did for his job was just too hard on a relationship, while telling others he had taken his wife to Jamaica for a story for the Times. Then, on January 11th, Christian Longo was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And with that announcement came the news that they believed he was in Cancun. The next day, a woman in Montreal called the FBI, stating that she and her boyfriend had made friends with him in Mexico. And the day after that, a tip from a resident at Christian's hostel came in letting the FBI know that he was still staying there. On the night of January 13, 2000, Mexican police, immigration, and FBI agents descended on the beach outside the hostel. Christian and his new friends were smoking pot and drinking when they kicked the door down. They quickly focused on Christian and he almost immediately told them what they wanted to hear. I am Christian Michael Longo. He was given two options, go back with the FBI or stay in a Mexican prison and wait for extradition. Christian volunteered to go home. Now what happened next after he returned home is pretty fascinating. Christian actually reached out to Michael Finkel, the reporter whose identity he had stolen. They struck up this bizarre kind of friendship with Christian agreeing to only tell his story to Finkel. Christian wrote long, rambling letters, many times accompanied by drawings describing his life in, in every detail to Finkel. He even called him weekly and Finkel accepted the charges. And many times he would get moody at Finkel if he didn't believe he was getting the attention he wanted from him. Several times when he felt like this, he actually threatened to take his story elsewhere, but ultimately never followed through. Finkel found out just enough to keep him hooked, but Christian never really confirmed or denied his guilt. Finkel had to find out about Christian's defense on the first day of his trial, just like everyone else. And man, did it shock people. Christian claimed he killed Mary Jane in a fit of rage when he walked in to find her strangling their youngest daughter, having already killed the older two children. Christian claimed he thought he was doing his daughter a favor by finishing what her mother started, stating, I didn't think she would be able to live with the fact that she had survived and they had died. That is that altruism that many, many psychiatrists originally thought drove people's motives. Now, once the jury, once the defense rested, it literally took the jury less than four hours to convict him and sentence him to death. But it doesn't really end there. While he was on death, while he is on death row, excuse me, Michael Finkel has continued to speak with Christian and considers him a friend. And of course, 
Christian claimed to have reconnected with God and in 2009 tried to donate a kidney to a man he read about in the paper. The man, however, declined. However, this did not stop Christian. He told the Board of Appeals that he would give up rights to all further appeals if he could donate his organs after his death. Now, the Board of Appeals denied him several times before he gave up, at which point he decided to start a nonprofit, Gifts of Anatomical Value from Everyone, or GAVE an organization that champions the rights of every citizen to be an organ donor. Now, in the meantime, since he did not agree to give up his rights to appeals, he continues to pursue them, and it looks like his execution date is going to be at least a decade out, if not longer. That's all that we have about Christian Mongo. Let us know if you like what you heard. Give us a rating on iTunes or any other platform that you're listening to us on. Five stars really helps us out. And leave a comment. Or not. Either way, we appreciate it. Now join us next time when we look into a former state representative and the cruel practice of child rehoming. And yes, I said child rehoming. And it is exactly as awful. Look for new episodes every other Monday, and in the meantime, we hope you sleep just a little better knowing how and why someone can do something so awful.